0: Hey, it's great to be here. I, your reputation precedes us, and uh, I, I've heard good things about this church for a long time from uh, Sandy and Larry Larson, who are Tyler's mommy and daddy, and, and, uh, and I'm going to actually talk about them a little bit uh, in a few minutes, but um, it's just great to be here. We've heard, we've heard really good things about this church, and thankful for you, and we got out of their car and looked up at the mountains, and I said, Lisa, we're moving here, so... Uh, <laughs> When's the next membership class, Pastor Mark? But, um, but here, what? Somebody's got to live here, right? And so you're suffering for the Lord by living here in Ohio. But um, we're going to go to, to uh, I'm going to say something that's very counterintuitive. I'm going to say, for the moment, keep your Bibles closed. And then I'm going to ask you to open them to Psalm 25. But just for the moment, keep them closed. And I want you to hear God's word. God's Word was more written to be heard than to be read. You know, they didn't have Amazon. So they couldn't get books delivered to them when, when the Bible was read. And so it's writ- really written for the ear. And so I want us to stand for the reading of God's Word. And I can, wait, 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 wait. Um, when I'm done, uh, we're going to go through 22 verses. I'm going to say the Word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. Together you'll say that, and we'll, we'll say that together, Okay. That's all the instruction you need. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are Wantonly treacherous. Make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He teaches the humble what is right. And he leads the humble... In his way, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inhabit the Lord. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for in you I take refuge. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Have a seat. Wow. Well, if I were to ask you right now, what is that psalm about? We'd have a whole lot of different answers in this room, wouldn't we? It's it's an acrostic psalm, and I bet you've never heard a sermon on it. I've never preached a sermon on it. This is fresh bread, so I hope it tastes good. <laughs> And and if you read the commentaries, the commentators are all over the map. Some say it's 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 a psalm asking God for guidance. Other commentators say, no, it's a psalm of confidence that God is always there. And still others say it's a lamentation, a lament, an expression of sorrow. Well, let me tell you why I'm going to teach out of this psalm, and it was kind of scary. To, to I selected this. I knew I knew I was coming, and I I chose it about a month ago. And I, I I was having my devotions one morning on the couch with a good cup of coffee, Pete's coffee, which is very biblical to have Pete's coffee, and uh, and I, I I was you know I'm reading through the psalms. I was reading First Samuel at the time, and and I come across these lines: "Turn to me and be gracious to me." For I'm lonely and afflicted. And this is the line that got me. The troubles, plural, of my heart are enlarged. Wow. Bring me out of my, plural, my distresses. And that that's one of those little verses that just jumped off the page and kind of galvanized my heart. Uh, Lisa and I, we're pretty happy people. We've been married 38 years and... 38 of them have been good ones, and uh, we've had a few fights, and she apologizes, and we just go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not lonely, but, but we've been through a kind of a, a, a rough season, and a rough patch in our life. Not between us, but out there. And uh, that little verse just kind of got me. And I want to ask you, is there anybody in this room that would like to pray that prayer and say to God, the troubles of my heart are enlarged? <laughs> Anybody here? Can you grunt or groan if that's your you? Yeah. Oh, I thought it, I didn't think that was the case in Ohio, but I guess so. Well, we don't know you well; you don't know us well. But one thing we know about one another is that things are not exactly as they ought to be, right? <laughs> that was a, a laughter of amen. Yeah. Uh, we live in what's called a Genesis three world. You know, God created, and it was. Good. And then we kind of screwed it up and it's been screwed up ever since. And uh, our lives are not nearly as bad as they could be, but they're not as good as they could be. And we've got yearnings for something more, for something better. So each of us, we know this about each other. Each of us lives with a degree of disappointment and pain and sorrow and regret and suffering. And Mark started our service, uh, you know, saying God is good and God is always good. That's that's true. But we've got some stuff in us and, and around us that is not quite right. So some in this room are enduring, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, the, the pain of a broken marriage. Or Or the sorrow of a harsh father. I preached a sermon once years ago on forgiveness, and a woman came up to me and she said, I forgave my father this morning when you were preaching. I said, great. Where is he? And she said, he's been dead. For two decades. But I finally forgave him. The the sorrow of a distant mother who, who didn't love us appropriately, or the regrets of the decisions that we made when we were young. Or maybe there's friction with our children who have abandoned us, or worse, they've turned on us. Or cancer, or the body that is breaking down, or, or the career that is threatened, or worse. Uh, we wonder if we've saved appropriately for retirement. We grieve over loved ones who have died. Uh, these things and, you know, 10,000 others, we might say, are our enemies. Now, is your Bible open? I'm sorry, I should have had you open it. Yeah, you got it open. That's good. Notice the way it starts. Your, your translation either says a psalm of David or just in the ESV it says just of David. And those are called superscriptions. They're not technically a part of the psalm, but this is a psalm of David, and David begins to talk about his enemies. He says, Don't let them exult over me. There's a lot in here about shame, and don't don't let me be ashamed. Now, we are given no context in the psalm. If I've just been reading 2 Samuel. Man, you want to read about a wild and crazy life. Read 2 Samuel and you learn all about David. Everybody's after him. And the guy did not have a peaceful, easy feeling. <laughs> you know, uh, is this the Philistines that are after him? Or is it King Saul when he was young that's after him? Or Absalom? Remember David's son Absalom? Tried to take over the kingdom. Did everything he could to take over his father's kingdom. We're not told who the enemies of David are. Uh, Or are these interior enemies for David? The kind that older kings have. Enemies of self-doubt. Of subterfuge within the kingdom. Somebody wants to take over my spot. Is David wondering, as he grows older, if he's still up to the task? Do I still have it? That's what older people do. Now look at verse 7, you with me? He says, don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Wow, a transgression is a small sin, okay? Is this an older man looking back on his sin with Bathsheba? The murder of Uriah? Maybe David at this point regrets taking many wives. You know, we don't really know for sure even how many wives David had. You know that it's amazing <laughs> when David finally gets to uh, Jerusalem from Hebron. We read this in Second Samuel chapter five. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Is that his regret? Well, here's my conviction about the psalm. I talked about different ways we might read the psalm, and you can read it however you want. But as I read it, and I Commentators have guided me a little bit. It's a, a lament, an expression of, of sorrow. It's, it's an expression of disorientation. It's like the song we just sang, Blessed Be the Lord. But this is the verse where there's all kinds of trouble. Now, typically, and there are a lot of them in the Psalms, you, you can read them if you want to know some numbers, come up to me afterwards and I'll share them with you, but they're not hard to find. A, a lament typically contains a good deal of complaints about the circumstances of life. But it's wonderful the way the Holy Spirit guided the writing of Scripture. These Psalms are written in such a way that any of us can pray them, and they sort of express our sorrows as well. Absolutely wonderful. Now, oftentimes, the lament songs are like a TV show where you have a problem, and just a few verses later, everything's fine. Which, that might bug you a little bit. Sometimes it bothers me because that's not the way life works. Usually life doesn't work out in 12 verses. (laughs) I'll give you one example. Psalm 60. Here's the way it starts. Verses 1 to 3. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O God, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink, that we may stagger. That's a pretty dire opening to a psalm, isn't it? Now get this. That's verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 60. Just nine verses later, we read this. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. And that's how the psalm ends. It's resolved. It's a good, good story, right? Got a problem, and God's going to fix it. And most of the lament psalms have that trajectory. From sorrow to victory. Sorry, Psalm 25 is not one of those. It doesn't have that victorious note at the end. This lament ends with a final cry for the whole people of Israel. Help, God. And that's how it ends. It reads as though it's part of the book of Proverbs. It kind of just comes at you. It's, it's an acrostic psalm, which means um, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and, and each stanza begins with one of the letters of the alphabet. And as you read it, as, as I asked you, I said, boy, what's that psalm about? You think, I'm not sure what it's about. It it's just kind of comes at you one after another, right? Did you, did you feel that a little bit? Yeah, of course you did. I want us to see three themes in the psalm that we shouldn't miss. And I don't, I don't want to box in the psalm and say this is what it's about, but I want us to see three themes uh, that, that we shouldn't miss in our own lament, in our own sorrow in life. We're going to talk about three themes, confessing, waiting, and repenting. Okay? So if you're taking notes, confessing, waiting, and repenting. First, confessing. Look at verse 2 with me, or maybe 1 and 2. The psalm begins with a confession of what? Of the greatness of God. You are the God in whom I trust. You're my God. I lift up my soul to you. And throughout, the psalmist cannot write more than a few lines without coming back to God and His supremacy over all things, including His life. You with me? If somebody grunts, groans, say "Amen" or something like that. Yeah. All right. So your Bible open. Look with me. Look at verse eight. Good and upright is the Lord. That's a confession of the greatness and the goodness of God. Look at verse ten. All I love this verse. All of God's paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. How many of them are steadfast love and faithfulness? All of them. I, good. Look at verse 14. God is our friend. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Look at verse 15. What's it say? He's going to pluck my feet out of the net. He's the one that's going to get me out. Look at verse 4. Sorry, I'm, we're going back up the page. It is God who teaches us His ways, primarily in Scripture and through His Holy Spirit. Verse 4 again, God shows us His path. Verse 5, God is our salvation. Now skip all the way down to the end. Verse 20, I love this verse. Oh, guard my soul. What's the truth that's taught there? God is the one who guards our soul. He keeps us. He loves us. He keeps us. Now let me ask you a question. It's going to get a little personal here. and Maybe you're going to... You might be frustrated with me in just a couple of minutes. But have you ever noticed that suffering people who are also happy people begin with confession? Let me ask you again. Have you ever noticed that suffering people who are also happy people, they are saturated in praise? Have you ever noticed that? I'll ask it a third way. Have you ever noticed that suffering people who are also, at the same time, happy people, they are saturated in thanksgiving? Ever noticed that? I was just in Colorado last week on a pastor's retreat. It was huge. There were four of us total at the retreat. (laughs) And a very different event. I've never been to anything like it, but... There was a man there named Dean, and Dean is now 71 years old, and I was talking with Dean, and we're getting to know each other, and he told me a story. He said, when I was 24, he said, I got a phone call, there'd been a car crash, one phone call, he'd been married six weeks, so he's got his new bride, he gets a phone call, and the car crash, his brother died, with whom he was very close, his mom died, his dad died, and his grandmother died. And two other people died. Six people died in this crash. Now, that's a lot of years. 71, 24. A lot of years. If I was good at math, I'd tell you how many years that was. <laughs> I, I, we, we had a lot of time together. And when I felt it was appropriate and not intrusive, I said, Dean, I don't know if you mind me asking you this, but I said, how? I said, did that phone call and the, the death of all your loved ones there. Did, how did that affect your faith? Did it, did it weaken your faith? Did it strengthen your faith? Did you want to curse God and die? What, what did it do? And it was so interesting. He cried, he wept all those years later. He just wept. But he said he never doubted the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. And he said, actually, that event was a catalyst for deeper faith in his life. Now, that's a dangerous story for me to tell you because you may have experienced some loss and you didn't have that same Dean-like reaction. And that's okay. I want you to know that because read the Psalms. There's all kinds of Psalms that that testify to to being so shocked that you wonder where the heck God is. But for, for Dean, he never doubted. It actually drew him further in to his relationship with Christ. Now, I've been a pastor a long time. And one of the things that happens to you when you're a pastor is sometimes you're marvelously surprised uh, by something you have to do. Sometimes you have to go see somebody and you're dreading the experience because the loss has been so great and you think this is going to be a difficult meeting. And you show up and when you get back in your car, you feel like you've been with an angel. You feel like you've been with Christ himself. You go to see someone who's in deep sorrow, and they give testimony to, to the greatness of God. They, they, they begin their prayer, their lament, with confession. God is God. He knows what He's doing. Just a couple of weeks ago, Lisa and I had a fairly full couple of days. We met with a man named Lee Smeeds, He's 93 years old. Lee has every reason to complain. He lost his wife 20-something years ago. He lost his job because he had a heart problem. He's had cancer, and the surgeons took off one of his ears. And finally, in his old age, he's he's a great guy, and he loved being home. He's kind of an artistic type and liked being alone, and he had to leave his home. And we went to see him in a retirement community, and we kind of tiptoed in and thought, well, what Lee are we going to see? We've we've been very good friends with him, and it was Lee. Lee. It was Lee. There he was in this little room giving thanks to God and and expressing the joy of what it means to know this God. Uh, We went from there in the same week to have lunch with Tyler's parents, with Sandy and Larry Larson. I don't know if you know this story, but uh, eight years ago, Sandy was walking in Santa Cruz, California, and she tripped over some of that orange snow fencing, you know? You know what I'm talking about? And... She broke her leg. Well, this is not a scientific description, but somehow, you know, when you and I, if we, you know, cut our hand, there's some nerve endings there that go up our arm and into our brain says, my hand hurts, and we rub it a little bit and put a Band-Aid on it, and when it starts to heal, the nerve endings stop sending the signal to our brain. Right? And we don't even know it anymore. Well, Sandy broke her leg, and, and this is, again, a non-scientific, there's some fancy name for it, but her brain thinks her leg is still broken. And for eight years, she has lived in nothing but pain. And Sandy and Larry are back and forth to L.A. for some infusions of something that's supposed to make it better, and it doesn't, and and they have lived in pain. you know, Larry's life has been changed, Sandy's life has been changed, I'm sure Tyler's life's been very affected. And you, if I want to be lifted up, I just call Larry and we talk for a while. And he's a man who knows how to confess the greatness of God. That's where he starts. That doesn't mean Sandy and Larry like where they are. They, they don't. But they begin, and we should begin in our lamentation, with the greatness of God. He is God and we are not. No 2nd guessing a proclamation of God's greatness his sovereignty his providence his care now i know that everybody in this room is living with some tough stuff and if we deny if 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 we don't begin with the sovereignty of god if we don't give thanks to god for his godness if we shake our fist at him well here's a word for us when we fall into the trap, if we don't begin with verses 1 and 2, without this confession, we will either move toward despair or to denial. Despair says, wow, it looks like God didn't, ha- didn't have this one in His control. And so we begin to worship a God who is only in control of certain areas of life. Maybe as bad as we move into denial, and that's where, you know, in the Christian community sometimes we're, we're led to believe that we have to put a happy face on everything, and we deny that, that the leg really hurts. That's not appropriate either. In the midst of our pain, our sorrow, our suffering, our disappointment, when we proclaim the sovereignty of God, as Peter Crave said, we learn the grammar of existence. What is that grammar? That God is God and we are not. And we come to realize pretty quickly when we proclaim the greatness of God, we learn pretty quickly that everything that we have that is good is a gift from God and that we deserve nothing. Okay, let's keep going. Waiting. The second theme that's here. The word comes up three times in the psalm. In verse 3, in verse 5, and finally in verse 29, the psalmist says, I'm waiting. There's a promise, none that wait for you shall be put to shame in verse 3. Look at verse 6. Teach me, for you I wait all the day long. Verse 21, I wait for you. Now this grates on us, doesn't it? When we live in a world that hates to wait, I got laughing at myself a couple weeks ago. I was in a little coffee shop in Santa Barbara, it's called Crush Cakes, and there there was an amazingly long line, there were two people in front of me. And I had to wait. And I just looked down I was tapping my right foot. <laughs> and I thought, what in the world? I've got two people in front of me and I'm a little anxious about that. But you and I have been trained everywhere, everywhere, that we don't have to wait for anything. We get fast food at In-N-Out Burger. And I know they're going to have In-N-Out Burger in the kingdom of God. That's for sure. <laughs> anybody? anybody, Yes, you are old enough. Remember, for the young people in the room, there used to be this thing called dial-up um, Internet service and you, you dial a phone number and once in a while there was actually a real dial and then it would go and then it would take about a minute for one email to go through. And we thought that was really cool. You know, we don't wait anymore at all. We get a Tesla that actually <laughs> there's an article in the news press this morning in Santa Barbara. They got new software in it, and you can call if you're staying, you know, at the hotel, you can tell your car to come out and get you. And it does. So so we don't wait for anything. Impatience is built into the fabric of our society. It really is. But watch this. This is so important. Waiting is built into the tapestry of God's universe. We are called to wait. We're going to wait one way or another. Whether we know God or not, whether we're patient or impatient, we are going to wait. The waiting of a childless couple for a child. The waiting of a single person for marriage or whatever is next. The waiting of the chronically ill for good health or for death. My grandmother wrote me a letter once and she said she and several of her friends were praying that they might die. The waiting of the emotionally scarred for peace. The waiting of someone in a dead-end career for something better. The waiting of an unhappy marriage for redemption, for escape. But watch this. In God's economy, we are all called to wait. Waiting is a part of our discipleship. Waiting is a spiritual discipline. God's children do not get fast passes to the Matterhorn. We have to wait. We must wait. How will we wait? There's a young gal in our church years ago who wrote a psalm in her Sunday school class, and her mom passed it on to me. I think this should have been in the Bible. You want to hear it? Of course you do. Yeah. Listen to this. Seven-year-old girl in our church. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Sounds like the Bible, doesn't it? (laughs) You are my God, me and you together. I love you. You love me. What are you doing? (laughs) That's so biblical. Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? What are you doing? Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You know the name Andrew Brunson. He's the pastor who was arrested in Turkey and and held in prison and he almost died. And it's a big brouhaha and he got out and got to go to the White House and so on. He's written a book that's going to come out next month or this month. Uh, He almost died in prison. He said, the hardest part was, he said, I'd I'd been trained to think that when I went to prison, I would have some great experience of God. He said, God was silent. And he tried to take his own life at one point. How long, oh Lord? Often God says to that prayer, "A, a little bit longer, I'm not your cosmic bellhop. And God in his wisdom compels us to wait. Why? Why does God make us wait? Why don't we just get it right now? There's an answer. Because there are some things that we will learn that we could never learn otherwise unless we had to wait. We do not become instant disciples. So, I bet you know the verse. See if you can finish it for me. We know that God, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, good. You know it. For those who are called according to his purpose. We spit that off of our tongue. And then we wonder, what about me? Our problem is the way we define the word good. We think that the word good in that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We think good means easy or happy or pleasant. We get into a fix and we pray and then we stamp our feet when when happiness and niceness and pleasantness doesn't follow our days. As C.S. Lewis put it, he says, We want so much not a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves. And whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of every day, a good time was had by all. (laughs) God's goal for you, for me, for us, is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And the believer knows that everything rests in control of a loving Father in heaven. Everything. God causes all things to work in conformity with the purpose of his will, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. And sometimes the trials are necessary for God to get us there. The, the consummate an, uh, example in the Scriptures is the story of Joseph. Remember uh, Joseph? How old are you? 17? Oh, that's... That, the Lord's doing a work right now in this room. Because when Joseph was 17... 17? 17, are you 17? Yeah? <laughs> okay. Do you wish I'd stopped talking to you? <laughs> when Joseph was 17, he had a dream. You got four... Four brothers, or, or no, one brother, and yeah, a bunch of yeah, lots of those people out there. And do you know how do you know how to pronounce your last name? Because I sure don't. But, uh, <laughs> all right, we digress. Um, when Joseph was seventeen, he had a dream, and he was he was young. He was a boy, so they're not they don't develop as quickly as young girls, and he was kind of foolish. He's got at this point, he's got ten brothers. And he tells them all his dream. And he says, hey guys, I had a dream. Someday you're all going to bow down to me and I'm going to run the whole family. (laughs) And it was a dream from God. And the whole story, I think that's Genesis 32. And the rest of Genesis goes all the way to Genesis 50. is all about the story of God fulfilling that dream. The story, I mean, God creates the heavens and the earth in one chapter. But (laughs) the story of Joseph goes chapter after chapter after chapter. It's a marvelous story. And when you get to the end of the story, what's happening? Joseph is ruling his family. He's also ruling all of Egypt. He's, he's, he's kind of the, the savior of the moment. And so God fulfills his dream. It was a real easy thing, right? <laughs> I mean, think of what happens to him along the way. First of all, his brothers want to kill him. That's a bad day. And then one said, no, let's sell him. So they sell him, and he gets to Egypt, and he's, he's, work, he kind of, he's just one of those anointed people that everything he touches turns to gold, and he's running some things. And then this, this guy's wife, the guy's name is Potiphar, comes on to him, and he says, no, 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 I'm not, you know, he's sexually pure. <coughs> he, <laughs> funny story, you know, he, she's coming on to him, and she grabs his robe, and he just runs out the, naked, and he gets thrown into prison for that. He's in prison how long? Two years. It's the king's special prison, which means it's really a bad place. It's dark down there. It's a dungeon. Two years. God, what about my dream? He gets out of the prison. And God continues to fulfill that dream. Not without a lot of pain along the way. Now, let me tell you, that's a great story. You know how the book of Genesis ends? The brothers come to Egypt. Finally, dad dies. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Jacob dies, and the brothers say, Oh my gosh, dad's dead. Now he's really going to get us. You know how the whole book of Genesis ends? Joseph says to his brothers, You meant this for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. Now, here's why this is a dangerous story for me to tell you and and to tell myself, is Joseph got to see the end of the story. And in our lives, sometimes we will not get to see the end of the story. Sometimes we just have to wait. How long will we have to wait? I want to tell you something. This is absolutely wonderful. We will not wait Forever. James tells us, James writes a lot about suffering. James tells us that we should be patient. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient until what? Until the coming of the Lord. He says, you should be like farmers who plant seeds and you wait patiently for the harvest. And church, for some of us, we are never going to understand the things that God has put us through. But I want you to know something. You and I will not wait forever. We won't. Christ is coming again. And at that point, the tears are going to be dried from our faces. The pain is going to be eased. It's going to be forgotten. And we will not wait forever. Confessing, waiting, briefly, repenting. There is a surprise in this psalm that ought to knock our socks off. It comes right toward the end. Don't look at your Bible for a minute. Just, just just, listen for a second. Again, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. And forgive all my sins. What? When you're really in pain and sorrow, it, it, do you have a reflex to repent of your sins? I don't. I think, mean, God, you kind of owe me a little bit here. I've been so faithful. But the psalmist says, I'm really hurting God. Forgive all my sins. Oh, this is amazing. At the Psalm, at the heart of Psalm 25 is repentance. In the middle of a lament, of a, of a plea for help is is this confession of sin and repentance. Now, if you are like an average evangelical church, you think of repentance as something you do when you come to know Christ. So I was talking to Bob the drummer here, and he came to know Christ 25 years ago, and we didn't talk about this, so I'm just going to put some words in your mouth, Bob, but... But, you know, I might say, oh, so 25 years ago you repented and came to Jesus. Yes, thank you, Jesus! Right? And fair enough, you cannot come to Jesus without repenting of your sins. But get this, repentance is an ongoing posture of the Christian life. We don't repent once and think, I'm glad I got that over with. No, it's our daily posture. In a few minutes we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And again, we're going to repent. And Lord willing, tomorrow morning we're going to get up and repent. And Tuesday morning, and Tuesday afternoon, and Tuesday evening, we're constantly coming to God and saying, Lord, I without your well, Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? So what's the main point? How do we get this psalm into a funnel? Everything I've just said, and you think, boy, you could have said it a lot faster read, but everything I've just said comes down right to this. The, the enlarged troubles of the heart are finally resolved in the gospel. This psalm ends with a startling conclusion. Look at verse 22. It's just out to blow our minds. When all is said and done, and the whole lament has been been uttered to God, redeem Israel, O God, from all of his troubles. Redeem Israel, O God, from all of his troubles. After 21 verses, the psalmist really gets to what he wants. He wants redemption. Suddenly, the psalm begins to make sense in the last verse. Hear it. Our trouble is bigger than our trouble. We thought it was about all these other things, our enemies, and and this, that, and the other thing. And finally, the psalmist says, I need redemption. Our trouble is bigger than our trouble. We're in far deeper than we thought. It's not that I have cancer or that my wife might leave me or that I'm 70 and fairly broke. No ultimately, my trouble is that I need a redeemer. I need ransom. And here is the gospel. The gospel we learn right here is more terrible and more tremendous than we ever thought. It's more terrible because right in the midst of this lament, I learned that I'm the problem. I need redemption and it's more tremendous because we learn that God himself is the only one who can fix it redeem Israel some of your trans- if you don't have the ESV it'll say, it might say redeem Israel from all of their troubles where's this name Israel come from do you know Abraham Isaac Jacob Jacob is a conniver, steals his brother's blessing and pretty much everything else. He has to flee for 20 years, spends time with Laban and gets a couple of wives and a couple of concubines, has 10 children, Come, finally comes back to the land of Israel. He's crossing over into the promised land and you want to read, that's Genesis 22, that's, that's the story. Uh, he has a rest, it's, it's one of the weirder stories in the whole Bible. He has a wrestling match with God and he loses but he hangs on and says, uh, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God says to him, You know what? Your name is no longer Jacob. It is Israel. Israel. What does So Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which becomes the name of the whole people of God. Right? What does Israel mean? Do you know? It means either he strives with God or God strives. So at the end of this psalm, Redeem Israel, O God, from all of his troubles. Redeem the strife. How did God do that? How did God answer that prayer? Remember, it means either he strives with God or God strives. At the heart of everything that brings us together this morning is the God who strives. So much so that He became one of us. You want to talk about striving? Don't go to Psalm 25. Go to Gethsemane where Jesus prays, Father, if there's a way out of this, let me out. There's strife there. There's, he sweat something like great drops of blood, but He goes to the cross to redeem Israel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom, to redeem everyone who would eventually put their faith in Him. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in the God who strived? I don't know what the past tense of strive is. The God who strived for you to the point of the cross. So Lord, we are, by and large, a troubled people. And our lives are good and we're thankful and you've blessed us. But things are not as they're supposed to be and we thank you for our Redeemer. We want to inculcate in our lives this, this life of confessing your greatness and your goodness. And this life of being willing to wait and to wait on your blessing and to wait for the second coming of Christ. And Lord, we repent. We repent of our sins right now. And we say thank you and praise you for your mercy. God, if there's any in this room who have never bowed their knee to you, they've never met Jesus, I pray for them right now that they would come to him and be satisfied and blessed with a new relationship with God himself. I pray that in the name of Christ for his glory and God's people said, Amen. Amen.